This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book under the covering title Christian Fundamentals and is number six of the series. This evening we shall be considering in particular the epistle to the Hebrews. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together beforehand. So those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join with us, will you switch off for a moment or two while we read together Philippians chapter 3 and 4. In this endeavour to step through the word of God, leaving out more than we include, we have still discovered that it's not possible to go through it two or three steps at a time. We attempted it, but we got very breathless, and so we've accepted it, and we're stopping at one step before we get to the top. <coughs> the epistle to the Hebrews should never be, it should never be forgotten that it has a sort of address on the envelope. It's written to the Hebrews. So in the first place, it's not written to Gentiles. Only in the second place is it a part of all scripture which is profitable for all Christians at any time and any calling to consider. It's wise to remember that Every part of scripture has been sent. Sent. Not indiscriminately scattered, like an aeroplane goes over a country and drops thousands of leaflets all over the place. But the word was sent to Israel. The word was sent by the apostle to the Gentiles. And this word is especially addressed to those Hebrew Christians who, having believed in Christ, were nevertheless very much haunted by the many things that belonged to their past. They couldn't quite shake off all the associations that were inbred into them with regard to the customs, the prohibitions, the great respect that they had for the law of Moses, having been brought up from infancy to believe that it was eternal, having been told by their instructors that God himself wore the phylacteries in heaven and kept Sabbath the same as they did on earth. Tremendous shock for that people to be even, to have it even hinted that the old covenant was waxing old and vanishing away and that God himself is revealed to have finding fault with those things. So we must be sympathetic as we read it and realise that it must have been very, very necessary for these things to have been said. Then secondly, all the time we are giving these studies, we know that we are ministering particularly to those who either know that they belong to the church of the one body, as revealed in Ephesians, or know that we stress that aspect very particularly. And so it might be wise for me to mention, and I want to prove it before we get through the end of this study, that what the epistle to the Hebrews is, to the early part of Paul's ministry, so the epistle to the Philippians is to Paul's second part of ministry. In Hebrews, the Lord Jesus Christ is represented as an example, running a race. In Philippians, it's running for a prize, and many other features that we can tabulate. Well now, we must come straight away to this epistle, otherwise we shall not get through what is more or less incumbent upon us. In the first two verses 
of the epistle to the Hebrews, there is presented to us three very important features. The first is this, and it must come first, that God hath spoken. Because if God has not spoken, then all the philosophers on earth could meet together, and they could have their conventions and their arguments, but they would never arrive at an understanding of what God is, or what his will includes. That cannot be done by searching or by discussion. But we are not left in the dark. This word has been given to us. It's described as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It has been written in human language, but as one of the Psalms puts it, God has chosen words of earth, but purified them seven times. So, the first thing for us to remember, and with thankfulness, to uh, thank him that he has broken the silence, he has stooped to use human language, God has spoken. And right through the book, that is the unhesitating position. Thus saith the Lord, says one prophet after another, and God spake all these words, introduces with solemnity the Ten Commandments. And you say, well, anybody can claim that. But you see, the book that claims that is a book which is outstandingly honest, standing always for truth and righteousness and holiness. Therefore, it would be a very strange thing if a fraud were foisted upon the world that stood for righteousness, honesty and integrity, that they all go together. It bears its own credentials. God has spoken. But then in this same verse, it says, in sundry times and in divers' manners. So while there's one fact undivided throughout the whole book, that is to say, it doesn't matter whether you open Genesis or Isaiah or Matthew or Ephesians or Revelation, you can say, God hath spoken. But on the other hand, if you know the story which is involved in Genesis and Isaiah and Matthew, and Ephesians, and Revelation, you say God has spoken in different times, different manners, and addressed different companies with regard to different callings. So the second element that is waiting for us in Hebrews chapter 1 is that all scripture must be rightly divided. For instance, we're going to learn in this epistle to the Hebrews that there are better promises, there's a better hope, there are better sacrifices, there's a better priesthood, and on a better, a better tabernacle. For well, those are enough to make you say, well, God gave promises in the Old Testament, but now you say there are better ones. God instituted a priesthood in the Old Testament, now you say there's a better one. Well, then God has spoken, and yet he's given different terms at different times. Yes, two truths must be held together. And they both come together, you remember, in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. In 2 Timothy 2, but nevertheless, see to it that you rightly divide that word of truth. And then, after being divided like that and split up, it comes back to a focus point again in Hebrews chapter 1 and says, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. It all comes back to the fact that the Son of God is the centre of the revelation. And he's the climax. He's <coughs> the end. The last days are all over so far as revelation is concerned. We haven't reached the last days yet. We're getting perilously near them. 
You've only got to look at the Middle East to see the signs of the gathering. But nearly 2,000 years ago was the last day so far as God hath spoken is concerned. Finished. The book's finished. Anyone who comes to you and says, now I've received a revelation from God, I hope you know what to do with him. Pity him. Help him if you can, but whatever you do, don't believe him. For it will be contrary to truth. God has spoken. And the last word is here. Well now, the next thing for us to do is to make sure that those who are listening to us appreciate this. Those of you who are sitting here in this chapel, you will be serving the Lord very graciously if you permit me to imagine you don't know a word about it. Because if I'm going to omit the things you know, well, it'll be a patchwork, won't it? And somebody sitting, listening to this tape recording in Australia, in New Zealand, or South Africa, or America, will be just be missing something because you happen to know all about it. So, here goes. First of all, let us acquaint ourselves with the fact that the epistle to the Hebrews definitely says at least four times over, God hath spoken. Shall we acquaint ourselves with these statements so that we may at least know where to find them? Hebrews 1. I'll read now the first two verses. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. I stop there. Here we have the Son of God in contrast with the prophets. Here we have these last days in contrast with times past. But no contrast with the fact that it's the one that spoke in times past is the one that's spoken now. God. Well now we look down the page a bit till we come to chapter 2. And once more we have God hath spoken. But this time, not through prophets, but through angels. Now without turning to chapter and verse, I would remind you, if you don't know the passage, that in Stephen's speech recorded in the 7th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, and in the middle of Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul has told us that the law given at Mount Sinai was given through the mediation of angels. You could read in the Old Testament that the ten tables of stone were written by the finger of God. What do you mean by the finger of God? Do you mean a digit like that? Surely not. The angels who ministered might be the finger of God, so far as that is concerned. But that we can be. But now we're going to read that in chapter 2. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And there is an alternative rendering of this passage which is useful, lest at any time they should slip away from us. And nobody could be perfectly certain of which was the point that the Apostle desired to make. I think we'll be on the same side, shall we? And we'll say, well, there's a possibility that we should let them slip and they should slip away from us. Two sides. In any case, it's a tragedy for God to have spoken and then we lose it. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, here's the word spoken by angels. And what sort of word was it? Well, it was a law followed by a punishment. If the word spoken by angels were steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, so you see, this is not quite the word spoken by the prophets. This was the word spoken by angels, which could be transgressed. 
could be disobeyed and could be receive a recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? So it's most obvious that chapter 1 and chapter 2 placed in great prominence the fact that God in the past has spoken either through prophets or through angels, but in the present he has spoken by his Son who is the Lord. Well now we turn the page till we get uh, to chapter 12. And although it wouldn't appear to us upon reading that the Apostle is reminding himself all the way through that he's got to pick up this question of the word being spoken, I don't suppose he did. But it does come out again in exactly the right place at the right time. Chapter 12, verse 18. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. Here's the spoken word at Mount Sinai with all its darkness and its terror. Then a little bit further down, verse 25, See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. So you see, the Mount Sinai in the early verses, and the words, you shall not escape in verse 25, absolutely tie it up with chapter 2, for it says, the words spoken by angels, and how shall we escape? Then he occupies a great bulk of the epistle and he says, if you've forgotten it, I'm coming back to it. You will not escape. Well now, if that's the case, if there's one more reference, it ought to have been gone to chapter 1, didn't it? Oh, are we going to find out the word of God slipped up somewhere and it all goes all right? Let's test it. Chapter 13. says in verse 7, Remember them <coughs> that have the word rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, Jesus Christ the same, yesterday and today and forever. They have spoken unto you the word of God. That's ministry. The spoken word of God. And what's this emphasis that it focuses our attention upon Jesus Christ in this capacity? The same. <coughs> well, you've only got to go back to chapter 1 to see that that's where he was leading in Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, thy years shall not fail. So it comes out at the end. God has spoken, and this one concerning whom he speaks changes not. Thou art the same. Now the next thing for us to remember is that this wasn't slipped in, chapter 1, just as a sort of a passing thought. Because it's a very peculiar thought, isn't it, for anybody to put down in Scripture that the very creation which was brought into existence by the Lord is passing away 
will be folded up and put aside. You would imagine that he was going to stress the marvel and wisdom of creation, that it abides forever, but he's got another purpose. They shall perish. The works of thy hands, they shall perish. He's preparing the Hebrew mind for something which was absolutely given by God, which is going to perish, going to pass away. I can believe a Jew would be more likely to agree that heaven and earth would pass away than one jot or tittle of the law should pass. That's what our Saviour said. But he says, oh, I've got to give you a jolt, my brethren. And I've been there myself, I know all about it, he said. I believe the law was eternal. I believe that it was observed in heaven. I believe that if any man could only keep that law, he would enter into everlasting life. I believed it. But he said, one day, one day, the commandment came. Sin revived and I died. What do you mean the commandment came? Oh, said Paul, you know what it is to recite scripture, don't you? You know what it is to say so many, many times that you hardly know whether you've said it. Friends, have you ever said, after you've sat down to meals, have we said grace? Now own up. You've said it and you don't remember, do you? I always remember being invited to take lunch with a friend when I was speaking at a mission many years ago on the Sunday. He sat down at the table and he said, we never say grace on Sunday. On purpose. Otherwise it becomes such a convention you don't know whether you said it or not. Now, he said, you can so say this law of God that condemns you that you forget its point. But he said, one day, I saw, as I'd never seen before, the meaning of thou shalt not covet. Now the word covet means thou shalt not have a desire. And you know what upset the Apostle Paul? He realised that desire was going on in the heart before you did the thing. Our Saviour put his finger on the same thing. He said, you needn't wait to cut a person's throat to be a murderer. He that hateth his brother in his heart. You see? Oh, he said, when I saw that the Lord, the word of God penetrated to my desires that were never put into operation, I finished. So Philippians that we read just now, touching the righteousness of the law, he said, I was blameless, yet I cast it all on the rubbish heap to be found in Christ. Now then, with that thought in mind, turn to the 8th chapter. <coughs> Verse 6, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which is established upon better promises. <coughs> for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. But finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So God, you see, has found fault with the old covenant and established a new covenant on better promises belonging to a better mediator and better sacrifices and that's the only thing that matters. So at the end, it says in verse 13, in that he saith, a new covenant, he hath made the first old, 
Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. There's the words that are already waiting for us or we've already had them in chapter 1. The creation is waxing old and passing away. He says the same with the law of God. It's waxing old and passing away. But what's God going to do? He says, I'm going to make a new heaven and a new earth and I'm going to give a new covenant. It's the new things that have got the permanency about them. The old things were there on purpose for their testing, but not to be ultimate. Well, we must go on and look at other features. And so, for the moment, uh, just notice, in passing, how the superiority of Christ is stressed chapter by chapter. In the first chapter, the only ones that are in competition, if we may use the word, are angels. Man doesn't come in, chapter 1. Verse 4, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Oh, what a wealth must be in those words, when you read it like that. Unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Oh, never let us think lightly of the only begotten of the Son of God. We cannot, without thinking lightly of him, too. And again, he speaks about the, the uh, Son in contrast with the angels. He says in verse 7, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire, but unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Oh, what a contrast. This one against all angels, you see. Then in the second chapter, he is contrasted, among other features, with Adam. It says, uh, <coughs> verse 6, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man, that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. That's the reason why in chapter 1 it says, And now he's made above angels. Because nobody in his senses would need to be told that the Son of God who is the express image of the Father, whose fingers framed the very heavens, that he's now a bit better than angels. That's nonsense, isn't it? He scooped so low that he made himself voluntarily lower than angels, and in that capacity as the mediator, he has been raised far above them. But it's not to do with his own intrinsic nature. That doesn't come in it at all. So we have the two sides, two chapters. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, Thou crownest him with glory and honour, and did set him over the works of thine hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But, here's the, here's the right division coming in, but now we see not yet all things put under him. But what do we see? We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honour, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. So, our eyes are turned from angels in the first chapter, and our eyes are turned from Adam in the second chapter, and our eyes are turned away from Moses in the third chapter. Let's have a look. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. 
For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honour than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for the testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his own house, Moses, and incidentally high priest and apostle. There in the earlier verse, no apostle can ever compete with this one apostle, the true apostle of God, the one who was sent, all other apostles derive from him. He said to them, I send you even as I have been sent. He that receiveth you receiveth me and receiveth him that sent me, the apostle and high priest of our profession, Moses. And so we can go through, you get the priests, if you come as far as chapter 7, <coughs> he speaks in chapter 7, verse 23, the priesthood, and they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable or an intransmissible priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost, all perfection as the word is, that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. There's the priest. And then when you come to chapter 9, you have... Verse 11, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say not of this building. And verse 24, for Christ is not entered into holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself. You see, how easy fixing them all. And then in chapter 10, verse 12, or verse 11, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He's the only priest who ever sat down in connection with his ministry. All other priests stood daily offering the self-same sacrifices that were only types and shadows and never removed a single sin. So, all the way through this epistle, he's saying to these Hebrews, look, you're losing nothing, you're losing nothing, you have the shadow. Here's the reality. Chapter 10, verse 1, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come. That's what you had, Hebrews. And blessed be God, it was wonderful. It was wonderful to have the shadow in the Passover lamb, and the goat on the day of atonement, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, but he said they're shadows, they're not the reality. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, make the comers thereunto perfect unto all perpetuity. Now I've altered the reading, haven't I? It says in our version, those sacrifices can never, uh, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. Well, if you offer a thing year by year, you offer it continually. But if you look at the verse 14, exactly the same words occur again. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever. That's the word continually. And it goes with the word perfected. So we'll read verse 1 again. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never 
with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, make the comers thereunto perfect forever. They made them perfect, typically, till the next year came round they'd go all over again. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But it's remembered year by year. Well, that's another feature <coughs> that we must keep in mind. But I shall be beaten by the clock unless I'm careful. So now we'll come to the two focal points around which the epistle to the Hebrews is written. And if we've got time at the end, I want to give you a few comparisons with the epistle to the Philippians. But if I don't reach that, I must leave that for you to dig out for yourselves uh, or some other time. But now we'll go on. Chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on out of perfection. And chapter 10. Verse 38, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul should have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them that draw back unto perdition. Now there are the two focal points. The exhortation to go on unto perfection, and the warning, beware lest you draw back to perdition. Go on, draw back. Perdition, perfection. Now if you look at chapter 5, he's speaking to them a little word of reproof. Verse 12, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. You see in verse 1 of chapter 6, therefore leaving the principles. So it doesn't mean leaving Christianity, leaving the gospel. Why, we, we are sad to think so many seem to be leaving those first principles. But he said, no, no, I'm meaning, I fed you with milk as babes, and not with meat. Well, he says, that's all very well when you're a few months old or when you're 12 months old. But if you go on until you're grown-up men and you've just got a bottle, fancy travelling up on the 825 with a bottle and a dummy. You say, well, that, that's what a good many Christians are doing in the eyes of the very angels that weep. He said, for the time being, he says, you are become such as a need of milk and not a strong meat. But everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are perfect. That's the word full age. Perfect. Having reached adulthood. Now I've reached adulthood, but I don't mean I'm perfect in the wrong sense. Don't misunderstand me. But I've reached the limit that I can hope in this life. The adult is the word. Even those who by reason of use have their senses, but not only have their senses, but have them exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore leaving the principles, the first the beginnings of the doctrine of Christ. Let us go on out of perfection. Perfection is a key word of Hebrews. You want to study it in all its contexts and you will discover that it means reaching the end of your salvation, reaching the end of the race course, reaching the goal that God has set before himself and man. But we come to chapter 10 in order to touch this other word, this awful word, perdition. Because in the minds of a good many people, perdition is equivalent to hell, eternal torment, hell fire. Well, is it possible that a Christian can be told that by some action of theirs they will be in danger of hell? Now, are these Christians, first of all? Verse 32, But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated ye endured a great fight of affliction. And verse 
35, cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. So they were believers, and they're exhorted, yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry, now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul should have no pleasure in him. Now this word perdition occurs in Philippians chapter 3, you read it, but you, you didn't say the word perdition. When he said uh, in Philippians 3, I think I better turn to that now as we've touched upon it. When he said, brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk, so ye have us for an example, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is perdition. He says, I'm speaking of those who would go on to perfection in, in Philippians 3 and are warning about the alternative. If you follow those who by their very walk and witness are the enemies of the very cross of Christ. And what's another character about them? Whose God is their belly? If we read the epistle to the Hebrews, we find Esau, whose God was his belly. For one morsel of meat, he swapped his birthright. He says, Hebrews, you may do that. You may be put in such a corner. You may have to weigh over whether you will or whether you're not. And you'll take the line of Esau. Think of Moses, who was given the opportunity of sitting on the throne of Pharaoh. He esteemed the reproach for Christ's greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Don't you see the exhortations that are everywhere? Well now I must give you the word perdition, which comes in its ordinary everyday dress. And it's found in Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 6. Now when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment, and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. And when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? Fancy having indignation over that. But there are some people who are very much like Pharaoh, he says, you Moses come to me and you want the children of Israel to be let off their work of brick making just to go out and keep a ceremonial feast three days in the wilderness. Get on with your brick making. That's the only thing that Pharaoh or the leaders of this world conceive as work. Why, I even saw a poster. I haven't read the article, but it says, do office workers work? You see, so I suppose the only only work that really counts is slopping about in clay and mud and brick making. Brick making. Why the very the very Tower of Babel was built with brick, not stone. It's all to do with this world's edifices and they're all going to crumble and pass away. Now then, that word waste, they said to what purpose is this waste? Is the word perdition? So we come back to Hebrews, we say Oh, friends, Christian brethren, you can go on to perfection or you can draw back to waste. doesn't say you will be lost, but you may suffer loss. You may build on the one foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, that's going on to perfection. You may draw back and all your work will go up in smoke. Well, there's the warning. Salvation is not in view in Hebrews. It's the things that accompany salvation which are in view. And the great exhortation is to follow the early witnesses for faith who endured affliction, 
who endured as seeing him that is invisible, who had faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Well, now I think, as the light has gone up, giving me a warning, I'll turn to the last phase that I wanted to leave with you, a few parallels with between Hebrews and Philippians. There are many of them, and it's a, it's a delight to sit down with the two books in front of you and patiently work them out for yourself. And when you've made your complete list and show it to a friend, you'll find he'll add one that you never thought of. And so it goes on. The wonder of it grows. Now, here's just a few. In Hebrews 11, there's a distinction made between resurrection and a better resurrection. It says, verse 35, women received their dead raised to life again. That's one way of putting it. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. So they, there was something about it that made them choose. They could, perhaps, have avoided, but they didn't. Like the Apostle said, now we turn to Philippians, and if you'd like to keep the two epistles open so that they could be easily turned back and forwards, he said in chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Fancy wanting to be made conformable unto his death. Fancy wanting to have fellowship with his sufferings. Humanly speaking, we try to avoid it, but this man says, I desire it. If by any means, and he means that it's a contingency, it's a possibility, the very words that are here are found in the record of the shipwreck, in Acts of the Apostles, they sailed out under a fair wind, if by any means they may attain that harbour, and they never got there, and the Apostle knew it. So this isn't a certainty, but it reads here, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Well, friends, you can't avoid the resurrection of the dead if you want to. It's a part of the programme. So what was the Apostle out for? Oh, there's a little word here that's not been translated, unfortunately. So we'll put it in. If by any means I might attain unto the out-resurrection, that which is out from among the dead. There's a double ek. Not merely an out-resurrection, but out from among the dead. It's something peculiar. Something that's got a mark upon it. It's parallel with a better resurrection. It's got an echo in Luke. Those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection of the dead. See? So there's an aspect here. Now this is connected, as you'll see, in verse 14, with the prize of the high calling. As it says here, Brethren, verse 13, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And if you look at chapter 12 of Hebrews, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher or perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he applies it, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. So we've got a prize, a race 
a crown, a glory in front of us, which was uh, parallel with the thought of the prize of the high calling in chapter 3. And then we have in the uh, uh, chapter 6, a passage I've uh, quoted in passing, uh, chapter 6, verse 9, But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. The things that accompany salvation belong to one of, they belong to the group called the better things, with a better hope, and a better resurrection, and based upon better promises, the better things that accompany salvation, not salvation itself. So it says in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Here's the working out of your salvation. Not by any means working for your salvation, but having received the salvation, what are you doing with it? Things that accompany salvation is in mind. And then, when we had in Hebrews 6 the emphasis, therefore leaving, leaving, let us go on, we have the parallel in chapter 3 that we just read, uh, where he says, forgetting, I reach forth, leaving, let us go on, forgetting, I reach forth. You see, there's a tendency on our part to try to get the best of both worlds. But then there's another side of it that if you try to sit on two stools, you'll most likely fall to the ground and get neither. You go back to the story of Israel in their experiences. They came out of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, they came into the wilderness, and then they turned back in heart. They wanted to appoint a captain to turn them, take them back to Egypt. And they said, we remember the cucumbers and the garlic. Tasty bits, you see, that they left behind in Egypt. They began to forget the bitterness and the burdens. In front of them lay a land of pomegranates and grapes and figs. I wonder whether they thought, it's rather insipid, not a diet waiting for us at that end. What about the tasty bits of Egypt? If they never felt like that, friends, well, you want to go in the British Museum and put in a little glass case all to yourself, I should think, for you don't know what temptations of the wilderness really are. And now, here's a captain here that they didn't elect. The captain of their salvation was leading many sons to glory. And he walked with them right through their temptations in the wilderness and never left them until travelling days were done, which is a comfort to us all. And then I've already, in passing, drawn attention to the temptation before these Hebrews. I think we ought to read the passage because of its terrible significance about Esau, chapter 12. Chapter 12, first of all, speaks about children. Any children. Not the firstborn, but any children. And particularly sons. Because it looks as though every son must expect to receive chastening during his upbringing. Uh, I'm glad to say I'm no exception to the rule. Now he turns from sons to firstborn sons. If you notice, in verse 23, we have come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. That word firstborn 
is almost identical with the word birthright. The only difference is a little ending on the end of the world to mark one type of word and another. So, we have in verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his firstborn's prerogative, his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. So it's one thing for a dying thief at the very last minute to be saved by grace and it's another thing for a person to have had the truth presented to them and postpone it because of advantage. It may be that when you do seek it you'll be rejected. Take for instance the most extreme case. I suppose if any man was a child of God it was Moses. He's there on the Mount of Transfiguration and they sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Now, did Moses enter the land of promise? No. In his great office, much was demanded of him. And he failed. I wonder he didn't fail before, but he failed. And then he pleaded with God. He always said, let me go into that good land just to go in. And the Lord said, speak to me no more of that. And Moses never did. If anyone thinks that because God is a God of grace and our standing is absolutely in grace that you can trifle with the things that accompany salvation you haven't read the word of God right. You are saved by grace without works you are accepted in the beloved without moving a finger. And when that's yours then God says now rise and walk in newness of life. I want to see some evidence that you are a believer. And that's where the rub comes. You can never lose your salvation. You could never lose your life. But the epistle to the Colossians says, Beware lest any man rob you of your reward. Let any man take your crown. And so, in case anybody should think that in the epistles of our high calling, such a possibility doesn't exist, I finish this by quoting Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 to 25. Colossians 3. Don't forget, in Colossians 1, these have been made meet for the inheritance of the saints in light. That can never be altered. Now servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. Chapter 1, you've been made meet for the inheritance. Ah yes, but there's a reward attached to it. You have a high calling, but there's a prize of the high calling. For ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. That's said to a believer in the epistle to the Colossians. And in case you say, oh no, he might say that to Israel or some of these other lowly callings, but not to me, he says, and there is no respect of persons with him. Well, that's as far as I think we can go without uh, overdoing it, to give a sketch, all oh, what a problem it is, in the few minutes we have, to in any measure hope to present a book like the Epistle to the Hebrews, and not satisfied with that, try to make it a comparison with Philippians. Well, I trust that at least you've seen something to stimulate your interest, and be thankful for the Saviour, and bless God, that although all things pass away, heaven and earth, and law and its ceremonies 
and you'll let start naked before God, there's one thing that remains. Jesus Christ, the same. Yesterday, that's all past time. Today, that's the present. And forever, that's the future. And that's the Old Testament name, Jehovah. He who was and is and is to come. We belong to him. So none can pluck us out of his hand. But we may draw back. And we may have waste instead of wealth. Instead of coming with something in our hands in that day to lay at his feet, we shall be saved, as Job puts it, with that wonderful figure. We shall be saved, but saved by the skin of our teeth. And who wants to get into glory like that? So may the Lord bless our meditation of the epistle to the Hebrews.